Hi everyone, welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis Podcast, the only podcast out there which every single day does a proper verse-by-verse exegesis of the scriptures from a Catholic perspective. So we're all about helping you understand the literal sense of scripture. What did it mean in its original context? And as Catholics, we have to start with that. And so today's reading at Mass is Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. So here's the reading. Jesus said to his disciples, Obstacles are sure to come, but alas for the one who provides them. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone put around his neck than that he should lead astray a single one of these little ones. Watch yourselves. If your brother does something wrong, reprove him, and if he is sorry, forgive him. And if he wrongs you seven times a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I am sorry, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. The Lord replied, Were your faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So an interesting reading we have today from the start of Luke chapter 17. What's the context? So at the moment, Jesus is moving from Galilee to Judea. So he's moving south, getting ready for the final phase of his ministry. And along the way, as he gets closer to Judea, he's doing ministry. And this takes up a whole lot of the last section of the Gospel of Luke. Now, the focus on this passage, or the first part of this passage, is on a group called these little ones. And there's been a lot of discussion about who these little ones would be. Often this is taken to refer to children, as in biological young people, young children. And certainly in chapter 10 of Luke, uh, it looks like Jesus is talking about children there. But another meaning of these little ones could be new disciples, new Christians who are under the apostles' care. It seems like in this context, It's talking about the latter. It's talking about new Christians. So I think that's the best way to understand this particular passage. Although sometimes you will hear it uh, analyzed in terms of uh, young children as well. So we're going to take it to mean though new disciples. Verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples. So notice that Jesus here is speaking to those who are already his disciples. And it's most likely those who are going to be the leaders of the church in the coming years. So it particularly looks like this section is directed to the apostles. And Jesus here says, obstacles are sure to come. Now, the word here for obstacles is an interesting one. In the, orig- in the original Greek, it's scandalon, which, of course, we get the English word scandal from. Basically, what it most literally means is stumbling blocks. So Jesus here says, stumbling blocks are sure to come. Most English translations take this to mean temptations to sin. That seems to be the best way to understand it. Jesus here is saying temptations to to sin will come. And so this is kind of a passage about what we would call the sin of scandal. This is one of the most famous passages about scandal. And that's how the catechism takes it as well, as we'll see. Obstacles are sure to come. So Jesus here teaches that temptations to sin are part of the world. Notice that he says they're certain they are going to come and they will happen to everyone. But alas for the one who provides them. Another translation here is, but woe to him by whom they come. So Jesus here tells his disciples that yes, there will always be temptations to sin for believers. Notice he doesn't say there'll always be sin 
for believers, but there will be temptations to sin. It seems to be a necessary part of life. But Jesus warns his disciples that they should not be the ones to provide those temptations to sin. They cannot be the ones that lead others astray. In other words, Jesus is saying to his audience, they must not provide the moral stumbling blocks that lead others to do evil. Now, there might be an element here of Jesus saying that this is what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees, perhaps, are those that put stumbling blocks in other people's way. And Jesus is telling his audience that they are not to be like that. So maybe that's what's going on here, too. So Jesus here says, Obstacles are sure to come, but alas for the one who provides them. It will be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone put round his neck than that he should lead astray a single one of these little ones. Heavy words here from Jesus. So firstly, what's a millstone? Well, it's a large, heavy stone that was used in grinding mill and pressing olives. So it's a very heavy stone. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone put round his neck than that he should lead astray a single one of these little ones. Or some translations put this, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So think about the image here. Someone's got a millstone around their neck and jumping into the sea. The idea is this person would drown quickly. It's supposed to be an image of a severe punishment, basically. Sinking to the bottom of the sea drowning is a severe punishment. What does Jesus mean here when he says it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea? Well, it's probably a hyperbole. We know that Jesus does use exaggeration to make a point, and that's probably what he's doing here. Certainly what Jesus is trying to do is to emphasize the seriousness of leading those who are new in the faith into sin. Jesus says that is serious. We should not do that. We must avoid it at all costs. It's a warning to his disciples, particularly his apostles, because they have a particular responsibility to make sure they model the faith well and don't lead other Christians into sin by their words and actions. But still, there's a further question here. What does it mean when Jesus says it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea? There's two ways of interpreting this. Maybe Jesus is teaching that it would just literally be better if the person was dead and therefore he wasn't around to lead other people into scandal. That would be a better situation than having anyone led into scandal. That certainly makes sense. But maybe Jesus is talking about the punishment of the person who does lead others into sin. Jesus could be emphasizing the punishment that will come if a person does lead a new believer into sin. It would be better for the person who causes scandal to die having not caused scandal rather than to have to endure the eternal punishment that will result from his scandal. So there's a question about, is Jesus saying it would, it would be better for the person to, uh, to be drowned rather than to cause someone else to sin for the benefit of the person who will be caused to sin otherwise? Or is Jesus talking about the person causing scandal themselves? It will be better for them to die rather than have to endure the punishment that would come as a result of that. So you could take it either way. Verse 3, Jesus finishes this by saying, watch yourselves, or more literally, take heed to yourselves, or be on your guard. So clearly this is a warning for his hearers particularly. Watch yourselves. Don't let yourself be someone that causes others to sin. And then Jesus says, if your brother does something wrong, reprove him. Or another translation here is, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Notice that, rebuke him. This, remember the audience here, Jesus is saying this to his Christian disciples, particularly his apostles. Jesus here teaches them, if a fellow Christian, which is their brother, if a fellow Christian sins, 
It is their responsibility as the Christian leaders to point it out to them. This is a responsibility for the apostles, particularly. It's not just a matter of forgive them. You actually need to point out their sin as well. Jesus says that's an important part of the process. Jesus goes on, if he is sorry, forgive him. What it actually says there more literally is if he repents, forgive him. Notice that there's a condition here. Jesus says that forgiving, uh, giving others forgiveness is conditional on their repentance. If he repents, forgive him. That would seem to imply that if the person doesn't repent, then you're not required to forgive him, at least on some level. And remember, we need to be careful here. This is a teaching particularly for his apostles. But still, he is commanding them that they must forgive those who repent. He's telling them they can't withhold forgiveness. Remember that Jesus elsewhere says in the Our Father, if you want God to forgive you, you must forgive others. So that's in Luke chapter 11, verse 4. So Jesus does say that forgiving others is important for your own salvation. In the parables Jesus has been telling up till now, remember this is what the older son in the parable of the prodigal son struggles with. He struggles to forgive the younger son. And therefore, it's an image of the Pharisees. The Pharisees struggle to forgive those who make mistakes. And that's possibly why Jesus is telling his apostles here, you need to lead a church that's different from the way the apostles run, uh, it's different from the way the Pharisees run their church. Verse four, and if he wrongs you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I am sorry, you must forgive him. What's going on here with the word seven. So many rabbis at the time that Jesus says this, they thought that three was the maximum number for forgiving someone for the same offense. That was the common school of thought. That's not in the Old Testament, but that was sort of the common wisdom at the time. But Jesus here says, if someone wrongs you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I'm sorry, you have to forgive him. Why does Jesus pick seven rather than eight or nine? Well, it seems that seven symbolized completion in a way, for the Jews. So, Jesus taps into this idea that seven means completion. And effectively, what he says here is, you must forgive someone every single time they repent. It's a teaching about unlimited mercy. When Jesus here says, uh, if someone sins seven times, he's kind of saying, if someone sins an infinite amount of times. But then the flip side is, you need to forgive them every single time. So, it's a call for unlimited mercy, which is a very high calling. Now, when Jesus speaks about this same topic of forgiveness in Matthew 18, he says similar words, but he also mentions church discipline. So that's an important part that comes into Matthew's version of this in Matthew 18. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So it looks like the apostles here are amazed and they're challenged at the teachings Jesus has just given, and they want to have more faith in order to carry them out. They feel like we haven't got enough faith to do the things you're talking about, Jesus. It's a too high of a calling. Verse six, the Lord replied, were your faith the size of a mustard seed? Now, the mustard seed was the smallest known seed in that area of the world. So, Jesus here basically says, even if you have the smallest possible faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, Another translation here is sycamine tree. So this is a large tree that had an extensive root system. So the idea is this tree is very hard to pull up. But Jesus says, were your faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now, there's what makes this even more remarkable as an image is that there is no sea nearby really where Jesus is speaking apparently. 
And also, these trees, mulberry trees, can't possibly be planted in the sea. They don't grow in the sea. So it's supposed to be something that's biologically impossible. It's supposed to be an image of something which is impossible, basically. That's what makes it even more remarkable that Jesus says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could do these things. Now, again, this is a form of exaggeration, hyperbole. But it is one of Jesus' favorite sayings. He often says things about, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, then you could do X. What's Jesus doing here? Well, he's picked an example of something which is amazing and impossible, uh, telling a tree to be moved into the sea and planted there. Now, he probably doesn't literally mean that the apostles could command a tree to move, but we can't rule that out. Maybe he does mean that, but more likely what Jesus is doing here, his main point is that even a small amount of genuine faith will enable God to do great miracles through them, which would otherwise be possible. So Jesus says, if you have a small, even just a small fraction of this genuine supernatural faith, you can do great things. Now, Jesus' response here could be interpreted to mean something He's he's answering their question, remember, or their request when they say, give us more faith. Well, maybe Jesus here means you already have enough faith, now go and use it. Or maybe Jesus' response here is a desire that his disciples would have true faith, but they don't yet. And probably the latter seems more likely. The disciples don't really get it until after the resurrection. We need to keep in mind that this whole section here, Jesus is speaking to the apostles. Jesus' teaching here appears to be that if the apostles, as the church leaders, have genuine faith, there are no barriers to God doing his work through them, so any miracle is possible. And certainly when you look at the book of Acts, they were able to do many great miracles through that kind of supernatural faith. So we get to the end of verse 6. Jesus has more to say to the apostles in the coming verses, and we'll look at that in the next few days. Let's turn to the Catechism, and there's a few interesting references here. Paragraph 2287 is about scandal, the sin of scandal. Anyone who uses the power at his disposal in such a way that it leads others to do wrong becomes guilty of scandal and responsible for the evil that he has directly or indirectly encouraged. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to him by whom they come. So you can hear that last part of the Catechism quotes directly from Luke 17. This is a key verse about the sin of scandal. Paragraph 2845, this is about forgiveness. There is no limit or measure to this essentially divine forgiveness, whether one speaks of sins or debts. We are always debtors, owe no one anything except to love one another. So that first part of the paragraph, there is no limit to divine forgiveness, kind of links in here with Luke 17, where Jesus says you need to forgive people infinitely every time they're sorry. Paragraph 2227, this is about the duties of parents, interestingly. It's about, uh, in the section about the way parents relate to their children. Children, in turn, contribute to the growth in holiness of their parents. Each and everyone should be generous and tireless in forgiving one another for offences, quarrels, injustices, and neglect. Mutual affection suggests this. The charity of Christ demands it. So right here in this section about parents and children, Jesus says that in the family, they need to forgive each other all the time, ongoing, constantly, which of course is what Jesus teaches here, is the standard for Christian living. Lastly, paragraph 162 is about perseverance in the faith. Faith is an entirely free gift that God makes to man. We can lose this priceless gift, as St. Paul indicated to St. Timothy, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. 
By rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. To live, grow, and persevere in the faith until the end, we must nourish it with the word of God. We must beg the Lord to increase our faith. It must be working through charity, abounding in hope, and rooted in the faith of the church. So the link there is that phrase, we must beg the Lord to increase our faith, which is exactly what the apostles do in this passage. So some really interesting catechism links there. And I just want to remind you that if you're interested in learning the catechism, going through the catechism paragraph by paragraph, much like we go through verse by verse in these podcasts, you can get access to an audio teaching series I have where we go through the catechism paragraph by paragraph. And that is available to you through the Patreon page if you do decide to become a financial supporter of this ministry. So I'd encourage you to check out Uh, that on the Patreon page. If you'd like to, there's a link for that in the episode description. Thanks once again for listening. I hope you've learned something new from this really interesting section in Luke, and we'll continue in the coming days. 